0: This podcast dives into the history of Heone with two colleagues who worked at Heouni from its establishment. In this podcast, they will take you on a historical tour of why Heouni was established and how the work was organized back then. One person who is repeatedly mentioned is Inkari Antila. She founded Heoni, but before that she was one of the first women to hold important positions in academia and government. The podcast also presents many aspects of the United Nations' work on crime prevention and criminal justice. The UN Crime Congress is a large international congress organized by the United Nations every five years. The first congress was organized already in 1955 and the last congress in Kyoto in 2021, which was postponed due to the pandemic from 2020. Heuni is a member of the United Nations Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice Program Network, abbreviated as the PNI Network. It consists of a large group of institutes around the world working in different areas of crime prevention and criminal justice.
1: As our guests today, I have the great pleasure to welcome my former colleagues, Terhi Viljanen and Matti Joutsen. Hello. Hello. Uh, You both worked at Heuni for a very long time, actually since the very beginning when Heuni was established 40 years ago. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. You both worked at Heuni, as I said, for several decades, and it's from this perspective that we will today discuss Heunis establishment and Heunis impact, but also the fun parts of working in an international organization at a time when travel was still quite rare uh, and international contacts were quite limited. We'll start off at the very beginning from when Heuni was established 40 years ago. So, a rumor tells me that the idea for establishing Heuni came during a conversation on an airplane that was flying from Egypt to Switzerland. Terhi, could you tell us a bit more about this and about the anecdote related to this development?
2: The story tells that there had been an international UN meeting in Cairo. And when returning from Cairo, to Europe. That was Geneva, I think. Then director of the Secretariat at the UN was Mr. Bill Clifford from Australia. And one of her old colleagues in the international circles was Professor Ingeri Antila of Finland. And those two friends started pondering the idea of having a completely new establishment for Europe. And at that time, Europe was very, very strictly divided into two blocks, Eastern and Western, depending on which socioeconomic system they had. The idea of these two friends was to have something which would bring the two blocks together on the same t- around the same table discussing issues in crime prevention and criminal justice and
0: that is pretty much how it was but maybe you might mention that there was one or sorry two institutes that had already been established before the European Institute in Helsinki Peoni. the first one was Asian and our East Institute, UNIFE, which was established in Tokyo, and the second one was the Institute for Latin America and the Caribbean, Ilanud, which was established in Costa Rica. So there was already a precedence for establishing regional UN institutes.
2: What was the aim of Heuni at
1: the time? Why was Heuni established?
2: There was only a very small part of the secretariat dealing with issues on crime prevention, criminal justice issues. there were a few officials doing that, something like five or so. And they needed sort of tool to help them with these issues. And that was one reason why there was the idea of having a European Institute. The idea was to have Eastern and Western experts, professionals, even politicians, to sit around the same table discussing the same issues as the problems were, after all, like not depending the
0: socioeconomic systems. There were some other countries that were being considered. If I recall, one was Spain and one was Poland. But right. Finland had the benefit of being a fairly neutral country, so it was kind of a bridge between East and West. And there was also the very important... Factor of Ingriantila herself, who was the other person who was on this plane, she had a fairly extensive network of contacts to both East and West, and so you had a combination of Finland's neutrality and Incriantila's fairly extensive network. As a result of this, as you said, the new Fledgling Institute in Helsinki was able to attract both practitioners and academics from both East and West to talk about issues of common concern.
1: Yeah, I think for the benefit of the listeners, I think it's important to point out that when Höln was established 40 years ago, the world looked very different from today. Um, And there was uh, a a big divide between East and West. Um, And perhaps there was, as you said, not the same possibilities, of course, for people from different socioeconomic backgrounds to come together and talk about issues relating to crime and criminal justice. So that's uh, kind of a different historical and socio-economic situation in which Heoni was established. What do you think were the first big achievements of Heoni?
2: The first big achievements were bringing the people together to discuss issues of common interest. Heoni, together with the other institutes, were able to introduce practically oriented workshops during the congresses where things could be discussed in a more free manner not necessarily very politically orientedly
0: the very next congress that was organized after the after Hewini was established was held in milan italy in 1985 and Heoni, together with the Global UN Institute, as it was known then UNSTRI, or as it's known now UNICRI, which is presently uh, working in Turin, in Italy, organized a workshop on juvenile delinquency. Now, uh, to mention some of those com- issues of common concern that were organized at these European seminars that Terhi mentioned, you had subjects like non-prosecution victims of crime, non-custodial sanctions, computerization in criminal justice, which was a very new thing at that time. But personally, when I think one of the major contributions that uh, Heoni made during its very first years, the UN started collecting information on trends in crime and criminal justice from around the world, which was new at that time because no one really had an idea of how crime in, say, the USSR would compare to crime in China or crime in the United States. Heoni was a pioneer in analyzing this data on a regional perspective. We brought in the best experts from the different countries to Heoni for a series of workshops and also a lot of work, which these people continue to do back at home. And we went through all of the data, analyzed the data, provided not only a regional perspective on of how crime is developing in Europe, but also national perspective on how crime was developing in the different individual countries, both in Europe and in North America. And in addition to this, we provided, you could call them short profiles, of the criminal justice system in the different countries. Now, that was very new work. It hadn't been done before. And what Heoni accomplished in Helsinki was then repeated to some extent in the other regional institutes, and then finally on a global level by the UNODC itself in Vienna.
1: Yeah, this reminds me that this was actually one of the first jobs that I had at HEONI quite a while ago, um, participating in the analysis of the crime data and the statistics from the European and North American region. I think what has happened since then, where HEONI had a really big role, was that this um, capacity has been taken over by the UNODC now. So, UNODC now contrary to then, has the capacity to analyze the data itself. So I think at the time, as you say, it's, it's really, I think it was significant, the analysis that Heoni was able to provide. Not just present the statistics, but also actually analyze kind of the, the causes and consequences of crime.
0: Uh, also, Heoni was very innovative in pointing out some of the, some of the drawbacks, uh, some of the conclusions that you should not make from the data, Because it was very common when data is produced from different countries that, for example, some journalists or some others would take this data and say, oh, gosh, crime is twice as high in country X as it is in country Y. Those experts that we were able to bring together at Heoni, they were very careful in pointing out what the limits are to how much you can infer from the data.
1: Yeah, and I think at the time, as uh, listeners might not be aware, that statistics and the collection of statistics was quite different. I personally recall these um, data correction messages that we sent to various countries where the data sources were not always very clear. <laughs> it... Let's move on to Inkeri Antila, the founding mother of Heoni. You worked with her for many, many years. How would you describe her as a person um, and
2: what did you learn from her? Inkeri was a very talented and capable, friendly, professional person. At her time, there were only very few women to start at the law faculty at the Helsinki University. She was one of the three, actually, at that time. She made her doctoral dissertation thesis and uh, started finally working also at the university. She became professor of criminal law, first one held by a woman she also became Minister of Justice again, first woman holding that position. She was very active in many international organizations, which was not so common at that time. And it is partly from those contacts she had her own network of friends and people and who whom she could uh, turn to. These people were not just some everyday people. They were professors, they were ministers, they were uh, high government officials, high court judges. What was a very significant feature in Inkeri was that she never went alone to any meeting. She always took with her one or two of the new officials, And she always introduced these young people to these eminent figures. We got to know them, but also they got to know about us. So it was very easy to contact them even directly.
1: I understand from um, the way you describe her that socialization and, and contacts outside of kind of formal official office hours was very an important part of the work back then.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, and this concerns especially the the times when seminars were held in Helsinki or how many people participated in international events in other countries. It was not simply possible to leave the room at four o'clock or five o'clock. Things and discussions went on. And when finally the interpreters said that now we are going home, unofficial discussions continued. You might have popped in your hotel to change a little bit or have a small light lay down, but uh, then you went out again to have dinner with the colleagues. And it was not just having fun. It was work. It was uh, many new ideas derived from those situations and uh, that's mainly what happened abroad but when they came to Finland to Helsinki we hosted dinners at our homes we took them to lunch and to see sight events and uh, uh, sightseeing and uh, things and one of the reasons of course was that not all the foreign guests were able to go around by themselves for one reason or another, but uh, this helped them to adapt to the western discussions and uh,
0: so forth. Perhaps a little bit more about the background of Ingriantila, Not only was she a professor of criminal law, but she also studied the social sciences, and so she was able to not only bridge the gap between um, practice and theory but she was able to bridge the gap between criminal law and social sciences. She basically was able to integrate these and she was a pioneer in criminology in Finland. For example, she was the one who introduced studies of so-called hidden crime, trying to find out how much actual crime there is in society. And you're totally right that she was also uh, internationally very well-networked. She was very respected. She was on the boards of several international associations. She was just a few years before Helene was established. She was indeed um, elected by acclamation as the president of the 1975 UN Crime Congress, which was a considerable honor for her. And perhaps it is no surprise to anyone who knows Ingrid that she managed quite well also in that. She was also very inspiring. And I loved her way of getting everyone at ease, no matter if you were a president of the Supreme Court or you were a young student, a practitioner, an academic, or whatever. She was able to bring people around the same table, as you said, during the evening to talk about all kinds of professional subjects, which she would then at times change up by talking about the latest developments in Peyton Place, which of course everyone was familiar with at that time. It was one of the early soap operas. All of this Dallas. Oh yes, I couldn't forget who shot J.R., but all of this was leavened with lots of red wine, which Ingrid liked very much, and that itself was able to ease the repertoire, make it easier for people to communicate.
1: Matti, you spoke a bit about Ingrid's uh, professional impact and her career, but I think one of the um, concepts that she helped create or actually created. Was this idea of humane and rational criminal policies, which at the time was really innovative, and is also something which is perhaps um, describes Finland's approach to crime, criminal justice, and and criminal policy in the nineteen seventies and eighties. So, where did Inkeri's conviction that social policy is important in crime prevention and criminal policy stem from? And also, what was perhaps the reaction to her quite radical ideas at the time?
0: Inkeri's interest in Social science, or the application of social sciences to legal problems, was part of the fact that she did have a criminal law background and she had a background in the social sciences. It's also relevant that um, her first day job after leaving the university was um, in the training of correctional officers. So, in that way, she got a very close contact with the reality of how the criminal justice system works. And at the most difficult end, and that is Uh, trying to rehabilitate prisoners and to train the prison officials to deal with the uh, prisoners. One of her strong um, beliefs was that academics, including criminologists, shouldn't shut themselves off in an ivory tower and simply issue proclamations about how things should be in theory. They should take what they know and see how it could be applied in society She was actually one of the first proponents of an evidence-based criminal policy. Find out what works, not only in Finland, but in other countries, and see if you could adapt it to your own country. She was also, uh, you mentioned that she was interested in using the social sciences and using social policy to deal also with criminal policy. Perhaps in this way, she was one of the earlier proponents of what today is known as the Sustainable Development Goals. Everything is connected with everything else. You can't simply take a, an offender who seems to be becoming a habitual offender, in other words, doing repeated offenses time after time after time, after term, prison, after term in prison, after term in prison, after term in prison. You have to find out what is wrong with society, what is wrong with that individual offender, what is wrong with the way in which that offender is working together with society or adapting to society and then try to, under, to change the underlying constellation so that that offender can be rehabilitated and can be um, reintegrated into society.
1: What would you say it was Ingeri's role in, in something which is acclaimed as Finland's success story in reducing the imprisonment rate?
0: Ingeri was a radical at that time from the point of view of the other professors of criminal law, she dared to question, is the prevailing ideology, is the prevailing basis for criminal law in Finland, or in general in the Nordic countries, or even more widely in the world, is it the way it should be? And then she started applying what I refer to as this evidence-based approach. One of the main problems at that time in Criminal policy worldwide was a firm belief in what is called rehabilitation. And that may sound like sacrilege to many people working today in corrections around the world. Yes, of course, we want to rehabilitate offenders, that's very important. One of the goals of the criminal justice system should be to ensure that prisoners do not re offend once they are released from prison. But at that time, the Belief in rehabilitation was taken very far to the extreme. You would send people to prison to be rehabilitated, even though we know today from extensive experience that putting a person into prison itself can lead to new offenses. It puts this offender into an environment where he or she associates with other offenders. You take away that person's ability to adapt to society so, that once that person is released, perhaps after 10, 20, 30 years in prison, that person simply is not able to adapt to society, which at the same time was changing considerably. So, she questioned whether this belief that you can treat offenders forcibly, she used a concept which you could translate into English as forced treatment. She had colleagues in the other Nordic countries which were. Making this or asking the same questions in their countries. And because of Ingeri's connections with the Nordic countries, basically this idea that the treatment approach, the forced treatment approach to rehabilitation of offenders isn't working. It's inhumane. But even more than inhumane, it's not efficient. You are simply making the problem worse by sentencing large numbers of people to prison for long periods of time. So she was a radical, as I said, from the point of view of criminal law, but she was also conservative in that she wanted to find ways in which the criminal justice system could operate more effectively.
1: How would you say that we at Heone today, 40 years later, should bring Inkaris' legacy forward?
0: Well, I've used the term twice before, and I know that many people don't like jargon, but this idea of evidence-based approaches in criminal justice It makes a lot of sense. One of Ingrid's realizations when she started this idea of having European seminars was that, yes, we all think that we have our own unique criminal justice problems or problems in preventing crime. But once you get someone from the USSR and from the United Kingdom, from Sweden, from Italy, whatever, to sit down at the same table, they'll begin to realize that they have the same types of problems. Maybe they appear in somewhat different guises. After all, you do have different social systems. You do have different levels of development. You do have different ideologies. But problems like juvenile delinquency, family violence, or well, many other issues, they are basically the same. And if we can learn from one another, find out what works, and perhaps as important, what does not work in different countries— Inkidi did not make herself very popular at one of the UN meetings that I recalled when she very forcibly said that, oh, it's so nice to hear about all of your successes, because many countries at that time said, oh, yes, we are really able to bring down the level of crime. We're really able to rehabilitate our offenders because we have such a nice system. She asked, well, why don't you tell me instead what you have failed in? What are the mistakes that you have made? Because mistakes you have made perhaps are mistakes that we could avoid and from those successes but also from those failures we could learn.
1: Perhaps if we move back a bit to this issue of of social networking we already spoke about this uh, a bit but uh, having worked at Heone for quite a long time myself as well I remember that um, social networking always played a big role in our work. Uh, And this was perhaps even more so in the early days. Uh, And then, of course, communication was very different at the time. We didn't have Internet. There was hardly any emails. Well, there weren't any in the 80s, but in the 90s there were. There was no social media and also traveling was quite rare. Um, How did you, Terhi, work back then to establish these interpersonal ties and networks and perhaps you could share
2: some anecdotes of these early travels? How to make contact with people First, the international meetings where you got the invitations and then you accepted the invitation and traveled to the place. And the traveling was quite sort of interesting at that time. Flight tickets were very expensive. And uh, there were some possibilities of reducing the costs. And the one Heoni very successfully applied was to use the so-called package tours which meant that uh, you booked a trip for one week including travel and hotel say in the um, golden sands of Bulgaria when you had a meeting in Varna not not in Varna but in, in Sofia and you traveled to Varna then you took a internal flight to Sofia, then back to Varna again. And you had to stay over the weekend. But that really reduced the price radically. And uh, of course, we had to write explanations to the finance officers at the ministry. Why did you use this kind of thing? This is pure fun. You can't do that. But when we put the figures, it became soon a rule that one has to travel u- using the cheapest possibilities, even if it takes to stay over the weekend Saturday, Sunday night, how to contact people from home. Well, there were telegrams, there were telexes, and there were the telephone. He only had huge phone bills but Also, that meant that before you could really arrange something over the phone or telex, you had to know the
0: people. At UN meetings, there is really two different types of discourse. One is the speechifying the statements, the national statements, the statements by the non-governmental organizations and others that are happened in the meeting itself. But quite often the more interesting ones were the ones that were over coffee or, as you said, over um dinner uh, later on. So I very quickly learned that there are some speakers who tend to go off on length in the meeting rooms. And at that time I would then not at a friend or two um, in from other delegations, and we would go out for a coffee, talk about various things, not necessarily Peyton Place or Dallas, but other issues. And then, after a leisurely cu- cup of coffee, we would come back and were able to catch the end of that statement and move on to other items.
2: Also, those get togethers in the evenings or coffee breaks or something sometimes brought nice surprises of the other delegates. Someone who had been very stiff and angry and uh, solemn and severe and boring in the meeting room could prove to be a most hilarious and nice person with great ideas also regarding the Substances use.
1: Uh, I think there's been quite a lot of changes in the past years, notwithstanding just the COVID pandemic. But I think there's also been a kind of a change and shift in, in working life in in very in many ways. Uh, there's, I think, perhaps a more focus on efficiency than on social interaction, which was very important in the in the early days of Heoni's work. And there's perhaps more work and less play nowadays. At least that's how I feel that the working life has changed. Um, and I think this has is related to changes not just in working cultures, but also to the fact that kind of the world is, is changing. I think there's also a, this related to travel, which is still of course very important in Heuni's work, uh, because we are working in an international environment and we work with all of Europe and the whole world. So travel is important for us, but I think this climate change uh, question and the challenge uh, is making organizations like Heoni also more aware of our carbon footprint. So travel is perhaps not as more uh, anymore as self-evident or even necessary as it was before. Uh, But I also think that we are in an increasingly polarized world in terms of multilateral cooperation. So I think it's really important that we in the future also ensure personal contacts and discussions also with those who don't think the way that we do. Which now takes me to our next topic on on Heuny's role in the UN. Perhaps before we move to that, um, Matti, you mentioned or you've been talking about uh, the fact that Heuny played quite an important role in the development of the UN crime program. Would you like to elaborate a bit on this?
0: United Nations Crime Program has changed considerably over the 75 years that it's been operating. It began pretty much as a small group of experts, primarily from the developed Western European countries, people who knew one another very well from various professional organizations, from other types of interaction. And there have been various shifts since then. One shift that occurred during the 1950s and the 1960s was that the UN itself became more of a global. Well, as a matter of fact, it did become a fully global organization, which brought in the concerns, the problems, and the needs of developing countries. That changed some of the discussion. You had lots of people who hadn't interacted before, were brought in with their own issues, their own concerns. And those issues had to be taken onto the table. You had things like corruption, uh, economic crime, basic difficulties in operating the criminal justice system because many of these developing countries did have resource problems. They needed lots of training, lots of um, help in developing both crime prevention and criminal justice. At that time, the UN crime program Um, as Terry had mentioned, was run by a very small group of people working in the United Nations Secretariat on crime prevention and criminal justice issues. But the decisions were made by what was called a United Nations Committee, well, I'll call it for short, United Nations Crime Committee, which consisted of experts appointed in their individual capacity who would meet towards the end of the period every other year for two weeks to have extensive discussions about what kinds of concerns there are and what we should do about these concerns. And, oh gosh, maybe we should draft a resolution to deal with this. And if not a resolution, perhaps a declaration. For many countries, it was, of course, important to discuss what the issues are and perhaps consider what the solutions could be. But they were beginning to get this impression that the U.N. crime program is producing resolution after resolution, but it's not really providing them with the assistance they would need. With that very small group of in the secretariat, with the uh, assistance of the regional institutes, and there were some other institutes that were joining in, in addition to the regional institutes, even those were not enough to provide the real hands-on technical assistance that countries wanted. So uh, there was complaints about what the United Nations is doing, the United Crime Program is doing, suggestions that perhaps it could be done better. But no one really had an idea. Well, how could we do it better? Again, Ingrid and Heoni provided a forum for these discussions. I'm not saying that Heoni was the only forum, but it was at meetings in, I believe it was in 1987, but fairly soon after Heoni was established, that Ingriantila invited a few of her um, group of friends, all of whom happened to be very well connected in their own criminal justice system, very senior officials, to talk at Heoni about, well, we have this criticism, what can we do? From that first meeting, which was then repeated 2 years later a draft was worked out and was then submitted to the United Nations crime committee and i'm very pleased to say that what was produced over if i could put it bluntly a few glasses of red wine and some cold pizza around the kitchen table in helsinki was then accepted with some changes of course obviously but The essence of it remained the same. And this declaration, this resolution, which started um, at a kitchen table or around a kitchen table at Heoni, was then finally blessed under the beautiful chandeliers of the Versailles Palace outside Paris. And this led to a complete restructuring of the United Nations crime program. While before you had the United Nations Committee, which consisted of individual experts, as of the beginning of 1991, you had a United Nations Commission on Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice, called for short the United Nations Crime Commission, which consisted of experts, sorry, of um, national representatives of countries. So it was an intergovernmental body, and because it was intergovernmental that not only gave it more political weight but the fact that it was intergovernmental also changed the types of issues that it was looking at and this was the second transition sorry the third transition in the united nations after the fact that it was established as a small largely western oriented group for discussion then became a more global forum this Became an intergovernmentally oriented body which looked at national priorities, national interests. And that not only gave the program more impact, but it also brought in politicization. Some of the issues did become political. Issues like cybercrime, the smuggling of migrants, terrorism, even something like trafficking and cultural property could become a hot potato, which once one delegation would mention this, another delegation would jump in and say, well, it's not really that way, it's another way.
1: How do you see the UN now? What do you see, what's your fourth transition?
0: Bringing in the United Nations Commission with its governmental representatives led to a greater focus on national priorities, national interests, but also on international cooperation. And for the first time, you had governments that were sitting around the table discussing, well, how can we improve international cooperation? At the same time, there was a growing concern among countries all around the world over organized crime and transnational organized crime. There were some other developments which was woven into this, but basically a large concern over transnational organized crime. Very soon after the commission was established, then a movement began to consider whether the United Nations Crime Program should do basically what was being done on the other half of the UNODC, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. And that was what was being done in the drug sector of the United Nations, where there were various international conventions which had a long history. There are now basically three main UN Drug conventions; the most important one of which was the 1988 Convention on Drugs on psycho- drugs and psychotropic sum- substances. So the idea was, well, why don't we, in the crime field, do something like what they have in the drug field? And that led to a decision by the General Assembly in 1980, sorry, 1997, to set up a committee to start drafting. United Nations Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime. At that time, transnational organized crime was a huge problem, at least in the opinion of countries all around the world. But surprisingly, no one could actually define what was transnational organized crime. So we all came to the table in Vienna saying, oh, yes, we're going to have a convention on this. But no one really knew or was able to agree with others as to what transnational organized crime was. Despite that, major difficulty in differences of opinion about what it is we're going to draft a convention on, within three years, which is a remarkably short period of time in the drafting of conventions, that convention was drafted and accepted by the General Assembly in the year 2000 and was signed with great pomp and splendor in Palermo, Italy. The UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime led to a follow-up, a UN Convention on Corruption, which was adopted in 2003. So for the first time, you had global frameworks for cooperation, which not only said how you should cooperate with other countries, but provided you with basic tools for how to develop your own national legislation. For example, the Convention on Transnational Organized Crime called upon those countries that became members of the Convention to criminalize certain types of behavior, like participation in an organized criminal group, money laundering, corruption. And in this way, not only was there a a greater clarity on how to cooperate, but also the minimum legislation in the different countries was brought up to par. The same thing happened with corruption, with the Convention on Corruption. The UN set down the template the goal, which all countries acceding to the convention should follow. And that helped not only national practice, national policy, national legislation, but it helped international cooperation. Now, the difficulty with conventions is they can look very nice on paper, but they also have to be implemented into practice. So then the United Nations started looking at the next stage, and that is getting countries to actually translate what was being done or what had been agreed by the general assembly and put it into practice and at the same time the united nations office on drugs and crime was provided with additional funding by the member states to look at implementation and i would like to mention one name here and that is a long-term member of the un secretariat Dmitry vlasis who was basically the primus motor in getting countries to, re, to look again at their legislation. And through a very complica- complicated negotiation process, what happened was that a process for reviewing implementation was put together. Not everyone was happy with that review process, but the UNODC was able to take this process, bring together experts from one or two other countries. They would go to the country being reviewed, and then have practitioner-to-practitioner discussions about, well, what is your law? What does it say about corruption or transnational organized crime? What are you doing in practice? Oh, I see you have this problem with money laundering or this problem with um, uh, influence in politics. Have you considered the model that we are using in our country? Perhaps that could be adapted to your system. Now, these types of discussion... Can be very sensitive. In particular, the offense of corruption is politically very sensitive because the government in power is always worried that some cases of corruption will become public and the opposition will seize on this and call for changes in government or changes in how things are run. But if you can bring experts together around a small table, away from the glare of publicity, and looking at how things, work in practice then they do have trust and confidence in one another and this is of course fostered by the unodc their neutrality and their high level of expertise in this way the country under review is able to take away various lessons that they can um, apply in their own country and i can say having participated in these review of implementation exercises in various countries. Those countries that review a country, they learn things at the same time. No one has really learned everything that they should know or that they could know. They can go to a country that is at the com- complete end of the world, a completely different legal system, a completely different social system, political system. And they can realize that, hey, what your people are doing actually makes a lot of sense. We could apply that also, for example, in Finland.
1: Okay, Matti, um... Would you like to talk a bit about how you see HEUNI's contribution to the UN crime program and its development?
0: HEUNI has one major advantage, and that is it's located in Europe. And Europe and North America have been basically the seedbed for criminological research, for innovation in crime prevention and criminal justice. So all of the individual countries in Europe have been Uh, looking at criminology and have been looking at innovations in criminal justice and in crime prevention, both from the academic and from the practical point of view. So we have learned quite a bit about what works and what doesn't work. Through its European seminars during the 1980s, Heoni was able to distill um, the experience, distill what has been learned in the European region for the benefit of the European region. And as i would mentioned, for example, the data on trends in crime and criminal justice, also trying to assess changes in criminal justice and in crime prevention. About 10 years after Heoni was established, then the process of Glasnost and Perestroika took place. And so uh, cooperation between East and West was opened up. And at that time, Heoni was able to provide hands-on technical assistance to largely to Central and Eastern European countries, for example, on issues like uh, crime prevention or policing, computerization of criminal justice, prison health, or prison administration in general. And more widely, the research that Heoni has been doing, or that Heoni has been able to distill has then been fed into the global UN crime program. For example, the research or the experience we have with analysis of crime trends and operations of criminal justice system, that was then expanded globally. We have uh, one of the first Heoni publications was on organized crime around the world, which was innovative. That type of publication hadn't appeared before. Then later on, our research on trafficking in persons, and exploitation, and Natalia, you are the expert on this, that has been also innovative in many respects, and the results of this have been fed into the UN crime program. One of our former colleagues, Christina Kangaspunta, to my regret, was transferred from Heoni to the UN and became then the key person for um, trafficking in persons. But this was to the benefit of the UN Global Programme because her expertise then was able to inform what the United Nations is doing. And now the annual UNODC report on trafficking in persons—it's really a marvelous tool that can be used not only in research but also in the development of practice. One of the other early contributions of. Heoni to the UN Crime Program was that we had a fairly visible role in the organization of the European Regional Preparatory Meeting for the 1990 United Nations Crime Congress, which was held in Havana. That Regional Preparatory Meeting was hosted in Helsinki in the Finlandia Hall by the Ministry of Justice and by the government of Finland, but in practice it was Heoni that did the organization in very close cooperation with the UNODC. So that was really when Heuni became very visible within the UN crime program.
2: From the very beginning, Heuni had a so-called scholarship program, which enabled Heuni to invite young scholars or practitioners, especially from the Eastern European countries, to come to Heuni, to Finland, either to promote his or her own research or to get acquainted with their um, counterparts in their own professional field. Uh, Although these uh, scholarships were not long period, it was just uh, one or two weeks, it provided for these young people very good opportunity to get to know the world also outside their own block and uh, have to mention that some or quite many of these young scholarship holders later held an important and high position in their respective countries in, in many fields like, you know, ministers or high court judges or professors or whatever.
1: How do you see that the UN crime program is faring today? Uh, what's the future of the UN crime program and how could Heoni perhaps contribute to supporting multilateralism in, a, in an increasing complex world?
0: The UN, for example, the UNODC has opened a number of national and regional offices to provide a lot of technical assistance, this practitioner to practitioner, expert to expert type of advisory services that I believe is very effective. At the same time, in Vienna, where the discussions on the UN crime program are being conducted, discussions quite often seem to become politicized to a very rapid extent. There used to be, or sorry, there still is the principle of the the Vienna consensus, and that is we can always find agreement no matter how far apart our positions seem to be at the outset. We'll simply keep on negotiating until we're able to agree on a text. But what has happened is that if there are fundamental political differences between countries, then that will be reflected in the outcome, the resolution, the declaration, whatever, which will lead to the document becoming more vague. It sounds nice in principle, but it doesn't really bring countries together. What I see happening is that the United Nations has changed in one respect. Before, it would be the experts and the diplomats who are brought together around the table. The experts would provide the substantive input. The diplomats would provide the way in which this could be melded into a whole, into something that would actually make sense. The experts agree, this is what we should do. The diplomats say, yes, this is the way we should frame it, and this is what we can use in our own countries. But once the United Nations began to expand its activities, there were more and more meetings in Vienna, as a result of which those persons in the room who were negotiating over texts tended to be the diplomats the experts did not have the capacity, the possibility, to travel from Africa, Latin America, Asia, whatever, to attend a meeting um, in Vienna so that they could provide their substantive input. At the same time, the diplomats, of course, they have a lot of experience because they have been dealing with these for quite a while, and there is an institutional um, capacity, uh, institutional knowledge in Vienna They try to formulate these ideas, but it's very difficult to do if suddenly one country would suggest, well, let's change the wording this way. And then you have to see how that fits in with your national interests. There is another level to this discussion. And that level of discussion is taking place between practitioners. Once you get the experts, the practitioners, the stakeholders, whether they work for the government or they are work for various intergovernmental organizations or for non-governmental organizations, civil society, whatever, when you get them around a table to discuss common concerns, what works, what could be suggested, then they're usually able to find lots of common ground and work together. I think it's in this area that Heoni could continue to contribute. We may not be able to take the floor and speak as Heoni representatives and convince people from China or the Russian Federation or the United States or whatever country that you should do this. They're not going to do something if an institute like Heoni suggests that they could do or they should do this. But Heoni can work with the practitioners, the stakeholders, whether they are governmental officials, academics, um, police officers, immigration officers, judges, prosecutors, uh, representatives of the private sector, representatives of civil society. So we can get that agreement among these practitioners, the stakeholders, they could then apply it in their own work. And at the same time, what Heoni is able to get, or what what Heoni is able to do, and that is get people around a table to discuss something, then that could filter up through their own country's criminal justice system and become policy and practice.
1: I actually have to comment that it's uh, an encouraging development in the UN in, I would say, in this past recent one year, has been the introduction of hybrid meetings. And hybrid meetings are of course in many ways very problematic because you you don't meet physically, you don't meet in person, you meet online. But in in the meetings that were held this fall in the working groups of the United Nations Convention against Transnational Organized Crime and its its protocols, there was some really fruitful debate and exchange between practitioners and it was actually very substantive. The discussions online in in Teams meetings were not your usual my country statements, but they were actually questions and the interactive debate that the UN has for so many years been been calling for. So I think that was a really encouraging development and I'm hoping that some kind of a hybrid format could continue in the future, despite the need for countries and and people to of course also meet uh, in person. We have in recent years, have been developing Heoni quite a lot. Uh, we're trying to increase Heoni's Um, kind of reach, but also how well Heoni is known, both in Finland and also in Europe. We've uh, expanded into new areas of work, we've hired more staff, and we're also trying to emphasize communication and communication skills, so there's quite a lot going on. Having said that, Heoni is now turning 40, a lot has happened, Heoni has developed a lot, Heoni has a great uh, history and a big Uh, impact on the development of crime prevention and criminal justice in Finland and in Europe and at the UN. Now that Heuni turns 40, what
2: would be your birthday wishes to Heuni? Terhi. When one turns 40, one starts having the best time of one's life. And that is what I also wish for Heuni. Have the best time of Hewni's life ever. Don't forget about the fun. The issues you are, you are dealing are very difficult and very uh, uh, not nice, but you can manage when you have a little fun there as well. Have a little blink in your eye. And when you travel, remember to have that fun. Although it is work, but it can be fun.